everyone, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback, and with me is... Spencer Faust. Oh, you teed me up that time. Suppose we should say, welcome back, because if you didn't catch part one, go back and do that. Uh, this is a follow-up. I'm just assuming that you uh, didn't read the title of the podcast, though, so really, <laughs> if, if this is still a surprise to you, I'm worried. Yes, we are going to keep talking about everyone's favorite metal band, Metallica. And that's a threat. (laughs) (laughs) In the last episode, we talked a little bit about the band's history, as well as a very long legal battle with Napster that really soured fans on their entire perceptions of the band. We last left off in 2001, where they decided to record their follow-up album to their album Reload, and their bassist left. James Hetfield said he didn't want Jason Newstead, the bassist, to do his own thing and said, you know, you're like my wife cheating on me, to which Jason said, that's a little weird and left. <laughs> Is there anything I'm missing, Spencer? Well, no, you you got it there. We got James Hetfield was the conniving uh, evil schemer and, and Lars Ulrich was the uh, thug with a bat that beat Napster's knees in. <laughs> as well as all of the teens that took his precious, precious dollars. I, I feel like I summarized that so well that that didn't need to be its own part. Shit. And yet. Oh, well, it's too late. We recorded it. <laughs> well, you didn't capture all of our goofs and chuckles in that recap. I mean, that's Jack. I mean, that's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> Nobody's here for my remarkable insight. They're here for my goofs. Let's go ahead and check in with the band in 2001. See how they're doing in these barracks. Oh, they hate each other. Oh, no. Oh, there's turmoil amongst them. There's turmoil overseas. They all felt the need to isolate themselves from each other. They were just getting sick of the egos surrounding them. Uh, That same Playboy article that I mentioned in the last episode, where they all separately were interviewed and then the interviews were all kind of put together. Every single one of them showed great disdain for working with each other and all they wanted to do was get away and be on their own. Ironically, since James Heffield told the bassist to stick close on a short leash, but they all wanted to, you know, be separated. The band, or rather the band's management, decided that the best method of action was to hire a personal enhancement coach. They got a team-building group therapist for their band. They got a guy named Phil Towell. Who does not throw in the towel. I don't know if that's his catchphrase, but it You're should making be. up so- Bob Rock, Phil Towel. I-, I really wanted to say it was Eugene Landy, but that you would not No, that. I most definitely wouldn't. <laughs> he died 50 <laughs> years ago. Phil Towel was not a trained psychologist or psychiatrist by any means. Already a good start. <laughs> yeah, very much like a Eugene Landy type. He saw himself as somebody who was... Good at it, though, even without training. He had worked as a counselor previously for former Chicago gangsters. And he also worked with the St. Louis Rams during 19... Oh, oh, slow down. Oh, God. (laughs) Whiplash. My neck. Uh, See, I just just feel like I'm not living up to my full potential. Seeing the boss. I feel like he doesn't care about me. Now, I wonder if he, like, was helping them get out of the gang lifestyle or if he was supposed to talk them back into it. That's what it it He was coaching them to be a better gang. That's what it sounds like you just said. (laughs) Now, listen... What I what I wonder, guys, is if maybe you could you could do it a little bit of a one two when you're swinging the body back and forth before you throw it in the harbor. Maybe just <laughs> and you've got all the stuff out to mix the concrete. Make some tie dye shirts. 
It's gonna bring you together, make a family out of it. You can't do this on your own. It takes two to torture. It takes two to torture. Now, have you thought about singing <laughs> like some old railroad songs when you're putting the clamps to the nips and you're shocking them with the car battery? Have you thought about that? <laughs> I feel like Metallica, upon hearing that this guy worked with gangsters, just said, that guy. And, like, they didn't even look at any of the other non-credentials he has. Um, but he actually did have some success. He worked with the St. Louis Rams during the years 1999 and 2000, also known as when they won the Super Bowl. So, you know, that brief period of time where we were, like, four and our parents were happy that the Rams were our team. Yeah, And yeah. that never happened again. <laughs> They were a blight on St. Louis for the last, like, 15 years, I'm pretty sure. Their ghost still haunts us with the Edward Jones Dome. Now, that does sound like a pretty good thing to put on your resume. But this was also the same guy who was hired to keep Rage Against the Machine together. The one time he tried to keep a metal band together, they broke up. So, I don't know. Maybe they just really liked the St. Louis Rams. Oh, wait a minute. Does Rage count as metal? Yeah, with rap metal. Oh, sick. Okay, yeah, I was into... Jack, I take it all back. I was into metal. They're one of the better alternative metal bands well, out for there. For sure. Alternative metal just means it's not Iron Maiden, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> While Phil Towel was brought in to bring the band closer, it did nothing but drive Jason Newstead further away. Jason Newstead was only around for one of these sessions, and this whole counseling thing was not up his alley. He said that the band was fucking lame and weak. For not trying to handle their situations and their problems by talking it out, they had to bring some other guy by giving him a bunch of money to do it for them. And clarified that certain people are made to be opened up and exposed. Certain people are not. That's all he left it with. I'm very confused on his take. I mean, like, okay, I get it. That that he feels like this, this method was ineffective. That's not against group therapy. That's against Phil Towel. His opinion doesn't matter because he's fucking out of here. He left the band. Yeah, get out of here, Jason, you wimp. He went on to have an incredibly successful career, maybe. I don't know. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Nobody cares about the bassist once he leaves the Somebody band. Somebody please look up Jason. Just make sure he's okay. As far as I do know, from time to time, he plays with Metallica on some shows. They have remained friends, believe it or not, even after he left and said these things. Vicious cycle of abuse. <laughs> he always comes crawling back. Always comes back. They brought in a counselor. That's a little bit strange for a metal band, but you know, it's all in favor of getting into the studio and recording this album, right? Are yeah. you excited for St. Anger? I'm, I'm hyped. I can't wait to hear what this one sounds like. Well, they can't record it just yet because oh, it turns out James Hetfield was just sent to rehab. Oh, oh no. But I thought Phil Towel was going to fill that role. Phil Towel was supposed to fill the void of emptiness that the band felt. But it turns out James Hetfield had already filled the hole with alcohol mm. and decided <laughs> to go to rehab. Amongst other addictions which have not been disclosed, I think he also suffered a lot of anger issues. Really? You're telling me James Hetfield, the manipulator who won't let you have side projects while he himself participates in side... You're telling me that guy's got some anger issues? The guy who literally wrote an album named fucking St. Anger turns out has some anger issues. That's kind of surprising The good thing is that he's going to get help. He went into rehab because of his wife, who he said that, you know, for a time when he was in a metal band, his anger issues, you know, kind of enhanced his experience. Being self-destructive in a metal band is awesome. But when you're in a relationship where somebody else is counting on you and when you have children, it becomes embarrassing. I thought you were saying that it enhanced the wife experience of being angry all the time. Just no! <laughs> Yeah, you know, I just I, marriage never worked out for me until I was just constantly out of touch with my emotions. 
No, I, I do have to say, he, he came to terms with the fact that him being angry needed some more constructive working. Yeah. He needed some more construction to his anger. So he went to rehab, forcing the band into a hiatus for several months, something that I'm sure Jason Newsted really wished he stuck around for for that Echo Brain project. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. The one thing he did not want the band to do before he left was to work on the album. So help me God, Lars, I don't trust you to be diligent to make sure that the bass frequencies are through the floor. <laughs> Non-existent. So what happened is that the band took a little bit of a break. Um, Bob Rock just sat in the studio waiting for his friends to return with the bass in its hands. Every time you say that name, not a real human being. <laughs> Bob Rock and Phil Towel both went to the courthouse to get new last names. Lars would take two of the songs they finished, specifically Some Kind of Monster in My World, to his father for some approval. His father said the new material doesn't cut it. I'm glad they're like so in touch with their parents between this and the the, the very weird revelation last episode that the, the bassist needed the approval of the former bassist's parents in order to be in the band. Like, <laughs> did they start out as a 16-year-old garage band? Is that why they're so in touch with it? Because I, I think they've been friends since high school, at least the original pairing. Okay, that might explain it then. The band would continue sessions with Towel without James Hetfield work on their problems while James was working on his own inner demons. And somebody who I think was a real upstanding guy throughout all of this, somebody who you don't hear a lot about in Metallica, but he's always there, is Kirk Hammett, their lead guitarist. I think that was the second time you've mentioned his name in this two-parter. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lars and James are like the two main songwriters so they're always their egos are a lot larger because they're the most successful metal band and they probably attribute that solely to their work. But Kirk is over here, and he's enjoying the fame, but he's sympathizing. Uh, he had once battled some addiction with cocaine and, you know, found healthy ways to deal with it, such as retreating to his Northern California home. Ah, finally, a means of coping that the common man can relate to. <laughs> okay, maybe the giant mansion in Northern California isn't very relatable. Something he did do in order to replace one addiction with another is collect comic books and horror movie memorabilia. Something that Kirk Hammett thought about while in his retreat reading X-Men was just because James is gone doesn't mean we can't work on a record. I mean, sure, it can't be Metallica, but maybe I should make a solo album. And he's like, calls up Lars and says, hey, you want to drum on my solo album? Therefore, making it half a Metallica <laughs> album. It's a good thing James did not hear about this when he came out of rehab because he would have probably killed him. I was about to say, like, I can hear the punches flying already. <laughs> I could just hear him being muffled behind, like, some padded rooms. I'm madly in anger with that idea. During the time James was in rehab, something that Phil Towel wanted to do with Lars was get into touch with some of the past, some unfinished business. You probably do not know this, but back when Metallica first started out, Kirk Hammett was not the lead guitarist. They had this guy by the name of Dave Mustaine. Did you say Dave Mustang? Mustaine. No G at the mm, end of that. Okay. It's close. Right. Does that name ring any bells no, to you? No, Dave Mustaine. No, nothing. Okay. Well, back in their early days where they loved to drink, snort cocaine, and blow shit up, they had Dave Mustaine on lead guitar, and he was the craziest out of all of them. Please, regale me. Tell me the <laughs> tales of Dave Mustaine. He was so crazy that he would often get into fights with people randomly out of sheer anger and rage. At one point, James Hetfield drove up in one of his cars and Dave Mustaine's dog jumped on top of the hood, scratching the paint. James kicked the dog for doing this, which 
first of all, fuck you. Yeah. But this sent Dave into a flying rage where he beat the ever-living fuck out of James, which, you know... Good. If anything, this makes him sympathetic, but he did this a lot of the time when drunk and... I was to say, tee me up for Dave's crazy behavior when he's doing it unprovoked. <laughs> yeah, you gave me a sympathetic <laughs> opening. It's like, Dave, Dave beat the shit out of James when James kicked his dog. And then Dave beat the shit out of James when he opened his Snickers. <laughs> You know it's bad when the entire band is on drugs and drunk, and they think you're a problem. What, was he a good guitarist, though? Uh, he is known as one of the best guitarists of all time. And it was all worth it. But you wouldn't know that from Metallica. He had never really recorded with them. He was kicked out before the recording of their first album. And he was so angry with them that he decided to form his own band <laughs> called Megadeth. What? Holy shit. What a come around. God damn. He is known as the second greatest thrash metal guitarist of all time because of it second greatest metal band of all time next to metallica i but say only because he got kicked out of the first best wow do you think that did some psychological problems to him i don't think you can really um damage what's already insane but <laughs> let me put it this way throughout the entirety of megadeth and dave mustaine's career everything he did was after metallica when metallica went slow he went slow, and everyone said he was just ripping them off even though that's what he wanted to do. Everything Dave Mustaine and Megadeth has ever done has always been considered almost as good as what Metallica was doing. Living in the shadow. When he was brought in by Phil Towel, he broke down in tears telling Lars that it doesn't matter how successful he can be, he is always being told by people around him that he's not as good as the other drunken assholes. Oh, I... Despite his own successes, he's always felt like he was second fiddle, and he was kicked out unceremoniously without giving any of a fair shake, and he couldn't contribute to the greatest metal band of all time, and he felt cheated. I mean, there was the punching, though. There was a lot of punching, but the dude kicked his fucking dog. Come on. No, that was the one time, and I and I get it. Any, James Hetfield can get punched any of the day of the week, and that's fine, but it sounds like Kirk maybe took a few blows, and that I can't condone. You know, when you replace Dave Mustaine with Kirk Hammett, who is seen as this peaceful guy who just wants to read comic books and stop doing drugs, you know, it, he seems like a much more attractive option, in my opinion. Phil Towell brings in Dave, and, and Dave has this heartfelt confession and the band says all right we get it dave we're gonna make a really bad album now <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna tee one up for you it's fine let's release a stinker so that megadeth for once is the better band thank you jack this is the best context for saying anger i could have ever gotten <laughs> at the time when dave met up with lars I don't think they were thinking about St. Anger anymore. Between losing their bassist and having the producer with the stupid last name cover for him, and James Hetfield having to go to rehab, they all hated each other, they all just wanted to be alone. They seriously considered breaking up Metallica for good. Mm. However, between the camera crew filming their every move, keeping them all honest with each other, Phil Towell's presence in trying to unite them and talk about their problems instead of just being frustrated, and upon James returning and seeing some of the test footage from the filmmakers, they thought that they were improving as people. They were like, you know what? It's a good thing we are meeting up with some of our past demons and we're dealing with these things now. I'm sure Dave felt good about being called a past demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, they said, oh, I feel really bad. And they just shoved him out the door and continued on with their lives <laughs> as they've always done. But when James returned from rehab and saw the footage, they, he thought that this was a good story and they shouldn't break up because of something that they can work out. 
which I think is a very healthy and constructive way of looking at things, no matter what album is churned out, and they decide to get back to recording. However, there were some issues to be had, the first of which being Electra Records. Electra Records was seeing the cost of this album by their most profitable band, bar none, and were becoming concerned about the extra costs from the filming. Instead of having infomercials, they looked towards Ozzy Osbourne and said, you know, he makes a shit ton of money not being in a band right now. Maybe if they explode <laughs> on each other, we could at least make some money by making this a reality television show. Look at him. He's really good at just kind of being there and still making money. <laughs> so they approached the band and said, we want you to play it up. We want you guys to hate each other. We want this juicy gossip to air on television. And the band were mortified. The only way they were going to stop their record label from pushing this agenda is buying the rights to the filmmaker's production outright from the record label. They paid Electra Records $4 million for the film rights oh so that they had 100% say of what came out of it. And on top of that, let the filmmakers decide what they want to do with it because the filmmakers didn't want to become reality TV show hacks. Four million dollars. Which was like an ice cream cone for them. But... Yeah, Napster was the problem, though. <laughs> um, but they completely halted that. They did not want to turn what was going to be something healthy into something for just media consumption, you know, fake bullshit. Because they saw it as something that they wanted to share personally, not something to amp up. The other problem the band faced was something not as easy to solve with money. When Hetfield returned in December of 2001, he had a mandated schedule. He was only allowed to work from noon to four on heavy metal, angry music, so he could spend more time with his family. I feel like this was a part of him being released from rehab and dealing with his alcoholism and maybe anger issues. A court-mandated healthy work schedule? I know, isn't that crazy? But yeah, they wanted... James Heffield to be nice and healthy and take a break. But don't think that he didn't want the rest of the band to adhere to that schedule too. He said that they could not even listen to anything they worked on, let alone talk about it, if he wasn't there. So the entire band was forced by James Hetfield to not work on the album unless it was noon to four when he could actually be there with them. So he was going to maintain that control, but he was working on his anger issues outside of it. So it sounds like the, the rehab for all of his anger and controlling issues is uh, is working thus far. <laughs> yeah, needless to say, it pissed off Lars. Uh, he called him out saying that he's being just as controlling. Even when not physically there, he's being a control freak. And in the documentary, you see him just get right up in James's face and just shout fuck. And then he leaves. The, you know what? He's not the silver-tongued bard of the group. He's more the <laughs> barbarian, so I get it. Yeah, he's the muscle. He's the guy who is very direct. After the altercation, James does break down and say that he does have control issues, and he's sorry for this. He feels that it stemmed from his childhood abandonment and that it was being forced onto the band in an unhealthy manner. What did Phil Towell say to make this a funny show again? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, we all, we all know that there's a personality issue at play. James Hetfield is not the product of a healthy upbringing, but... <laughs> I know, it, like Phil Towell's just sitting there like, oh, oh shit, this is working, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Man, this therapist guy really got through to him, I should take some notes. Things started to get better. James realized I need to tone it down a bit. Kirk Hammett came back and was like, he's going through a process, but I'm sympathizing with him, I understand my bandmate. 
Bob Rock is just happy to be there. <laughs> Thanks for letting me play bass, guys. And Lars, he's, he's just shouting things. The band's relationship would improve along with their creativity as they worked through their problems. They started sharing commonalities. You know, they were relating to each other on some common interests. That being a mutual disgust with the public's reaction to the Napster lawsuit, as well as their management's insistence on promotional avenues the band should take. They were bonding over how much they hated everyone else. Mm hmm. Um, number one, healthy motif <laughs> to bring out of Hetfield's anger management therapy. Number two, I see an album coming. That's right. They start recording this album. They are focusing all of their anger into it. And with their improved relations, the band collectively comes to the decision that, you know, we did a really good job working on our issues all by ourselves. Why do we have Phil Towel here at all? And they all look to him and say, get the fuck out. Uh, and Phil says, oh, fuck you guys. I'm going to go work with Oasis. <laughs> They fire him, and you can see it in the documentary of him being really defensive, like, what the- I'm the guy who is helping you here, and they're like, eh, we're spending too much money on you, get the fuck out. We're spending too much money on you, camera guy, get a nice close-up, get a close-up of this. <laughs> Maybe that's how the Rams happen, too, that- hey, Phil, we didn't even need you to get to the Super Bowl, get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot of the backstory behind the album. But that's not where the fun stories end, because if you've ever listened to the album, which you had to, Spencer, I'm sorry, you know there has to be something more behind it. Once you listen to it and you audibly hear what they thought was an album, we have to talk about the production. Oh yeah, we do. The album, when you listen to it, is very clearly a slave to the trends of the time, much like Load and Reload. But it's been several years. New bands have been showing up. When I say new, I mean new metal. Korn, Slipknot, all these bands that we grew up with, they're starting to take the radio airwaves en masse. In 2003, they're starting to take the radio airwaves en masse. Am I hearing that right? Well, let me put it this way. This is before Slipknot released Duality in Volume 3. So this is around the time where, like, mm -hmm. they were being played on mainstream rock. You were starting to see a lot of bands actually showing up on the radio, not just in terms of metal and alternative charts, but Billboard. You have... Bands like Korn in 2002 fighting against Napster, honestly enough, that their album was only number two when it was released and Eminem stole number one on the billboard. When Korn is arguing about Eminem beating them on the sale chart, you know that music, pop music, was just in dire straits. I can't even picture Fred Durst's lyrics on the radio. I can't. <laughs> it doesn't, it, none of it makes sense to me right now. Uh, there was a reason why we listened to it and thought we were rebelling. It's because it was what was actually popular in terms of angry music. <laughs> it's shocking to think of. Uh, back in the day. St. Anger, much like Load and Reload, was a slave to the trends, this time being alternative metal. The sound was also incredibly rough, and it sounded very much like Metallica wanted to go back to their roots, but also still play towards what people liked at the time. Garage bandy. Garage bandy in that, in lieu of a drum kit, they just went for like a metal garbage can <laughs> and uh, just wanged it with like a nearby hammer. Is that what you mean by garage bandy? Can we finally talk about this snare drum? It's been driving me crazy for days. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Lars, we lost your drum kit. Here's some pots and pans though. What honestly happened? was the first recording session he forgot to turn on his snares. And when they listened to it, they all heard it, and he said, you know, you don't hear that a lot. That's pretty cool. It gives an ambience to it. 
You don't hear that a lot because it sounds bad. <laughs> what? It sounds like he's dribbling a basketball into yes, into does. a garage. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, we sampled the floor of a YMCA at rush hour. What are you? <laughs> why? Why? I- I'm thinking back towards our first episode when you accidentally listened to a cut of Loveless. Mm-hmm. That was just the drum fill at the beginning. Yeah. And I imagined, what if that happened with this album? Yeah, what if that was their drum sample? What if that was their snare sample for an entire metal album? <laughs> and it wouldn't be so bad if Metallica songs didn't go twice as long as they're supposed yeah. to. They'll do the first half of the song. I'm like, ah, nice. We can get, we can wrap it up now. Three minutes. Then they just do it again. Then they, they don't change anything though. They just do it again. It is literally like they copy paste the verse and the chorus three times. <laughs> the third time they double the chorus and they introduce a random bridge riff that goes on for three. Yep. Trust me, people caught on to Metallica outstaying their welcome at this point. Even some of the verses feel straight up repeated. Like, I, I didn't notice much lyrical variance. There, there's even. a lot of copied lyrics. What I love about this album, and I do mean love, is that you hear the drums, and <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. And you start getting a headache. When you try to tune out the drums, what you realize is that the drums were like a Trojan horse. Every sound in the album is awful. The guitar tone... The singing, the bass, when you can hear it, sounds like a wet turd. It's it's shocking how every instrument is so terribly recorded. And it's masked by the drums. But the snare covers it up with that ambience that Lars was talking about. The guitars on this album were tracked using James Hetfield's very first guitar and amp that he ever bought as a kid. He wanted to go way back to his roots, and he played on his very first guitar. I just, uh, at Toyota, um, you know, we want to go back to our roots, which is why (laughs) the latest, our latest model, our latest four-door sedan is actually just a horse and buggy. Um, Yeah, maybe don't go too far back, James. Maybe, maybe go back to, like, the style roots, not the actual equipment. Eight of the 11 songs were in drop C tuning. They all varied in tuning, but most of them were in drop C, which is something low even for a lot of bands at the time. That is one... I like a rig that I have to retune halfway through the song itself. Uh, You think that's bad? The lowest tuning they had was on Invisible Kid, and you can hear it. It was in drop A flat, which I once heard on the internet being described as the mud tone. That was, uh, incidentally, my least favorite song on this album. Yeah, a lot of people really hate that fucking song because it sounds like the guitar is a mudfish. <laughs> it sounds like I've picked this up on like a like an offshore oil rig microphone. Like one of these, if you speed it up, it sounds like Cthulhu coming out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> to top all of this off, James Hetfield singing these angsty personal lyrics that he's been doing since the 90s was taking what he learned from rehab and therapy and outwardly throwing his voice to show his frustration. You would not believe me when I told you this is the first album they did when he was taking vocal lessons. He, he, is, he can sing in tune. Not here, though. When James Hetfield was asked about his vocal performance and the rest of the instrumentation in general, he said, it's just the best that it can be from us right now. Which is not... Not a good cover. Like, hey, sorry, we're just going through some shit right now, man. It's We're trying our best. You know, the raw sound was intentional, but there's a point where you're like... You really don't want to take another take. And that's when you all look towards Bob Rock. Bob Rock commented specifically on the rough sound, saying that 
you know, he wanted to do it on purpose because he thought that if the band went really raw and really to their roots and sounded like playing in a garage, it would shake up the radio to hear the biggest metal band of all time sounding like four random idiots who don't know what they're doing. You know what? One of my favorite bands launched uh, demo tapes of their second album as like celebrating its 10 year anniversary. Did not enjoy listening to those. <laughs> no, I don't enjoy you guys being bad. No, I actually kind of enjoy uh, a bit of polish from the studio and really shaping things up and uh, not what you've just done here. I like it when people put in effort to work. Hot take, Jack. Hot take. I know. Like, <laughs> I love the Beatles, but I'm not sitting through six hours of the White Album. I'm sure it'll be interesting once. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want to hear the five other versions of Obla D that you scrapped. <laughs> I barely want to hear the final take. Bob Rock, he said that they flat out just didn't have enough time to get an amazing performance out of James. He admitted that they didn't have time to redo it. And they just kept it because at the end of the day, they kind of liked how it sounded. Again, with this after the fact justification. Yeah, we, we, we turned it all down because we fucking hate the sound of bass. <laughs> No, 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 wait, it was a tribute to our friend. Yeah, no, the album sucks. Uh, we didn't have time to do it better. No, 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 wait, we wanted to sound like a garage band. <laughs> to be fair, it, it was probably influenced by the fact he could only work four hours per day, but you can still record a second take the next day. I'm you say, don't you have just to do it the next day. Just do it the next Also, if you can't get a good take in four hours, something's wrong. <laughs> One thing that he did was admit that he was guilty in the past. Bob Rock was guilty in the past of... Tuning vocals in post-production. Something that a producer does. You know, he, he, he was like, I'm sorry, I've done my job and made the singer sound good, but that's not raw enough. I decide this would be the first album where I stand up against producing a record. You know, sometimes you need pitch correction because a polished sound is what we've uh, come to appreciate for the large part. It's not meant to cover up a bad performance. It's meant to enhance a performance. That's what it should yes. be. Bob Rock decided... Let's try not doing that with Metallica and see how the masses like it. Something about the way he wanted to throw his voice. I've heard Metallica singles before. He sounds like he's doing an homage to Scott Stapp on this album. Like like a Creed Stone Temple Pilots tribute. I, I hate it. There is something that the band left out on this album, Spencer. I don't know if you noticed it. It's not the bass. Was it you effort? Other than effort, something that is tangible, something that you can listen to. It's not the bass, you can hear that. And it's not the snare, we've already gone over that. So we've talked about the drums, we talked about the bass, and we talked about the guitar tone of James Hetfield. What are we missing, Spencer? Well, we went over the vocals too, shucks. Um, what was Towel doing in all this? Oh no, he's gone. There, there's a guy in the back of the studio reading a comic book right now by the name of Kirk Hammett. Oh, Kirk! He's so forgettable, it's his superpower. <laughs> I mean, at least in this episode, Kirk is one of metal music's most popular guitarists in terms of a lead performance. Metallica has been known for their guitar solos. Did they Did they home alone him? <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> we forgot about Kirk. It, they're shipping it up. No, we forgot Kirk. <laughs> oh my God. And they have fucking Joe Pesci. He's trying to rob them of all their millions of dollars of comic books. <laughs> Oh, God, Kirk's back in his North California manor fighting off the wet bandits. <laughs> and he goes outside and he sees a bassist and he looks like a scary old man and he screams. <laughs> yeah, there's no guitar solos in this album, is there, Spencer? No, now that you mention it, Jack. I don't see the signature licks of Kirk. The reason why there are no guitar solos is not because they forgot Kirk. He's on the record. He's playing the rhythm with James. 
Lars, knowing the music trends at the time, probably listened to Korn, realized that they had two guitarists, both playing rhythm, neither of which were amazing lead guitarists. They made like weird scratchy sounds. It works for Tom Morello. Yeah, Tom Morello would do a lot of crazy cool things with his guitar, but Lars was like, this is the sign of the times. We need to pursue this. And he told Kirk there would be no guitar solos. That's like if I went to you on this podcast and I said, you're just going to laugh. You can't talk. This is going to be a solo podcast and you're my laugh track. We're going to get rid of a fundamental aspect of why people listen to the show. Somebody help me find Kirk's spine. Because how the fuck do you tolerate that? Kirk in the band, uh, I might be overplaying this a bit. He's known as the calm counterpoint to the egos of Lars and James. He's always been there, but he's always in the backseat. He doesn't like to make a big fuss. He is very well versed in like Buddhist teachings and philosophies. He is the reason why we have this Zen axiom in St. Anger. This is a Buddhist line relating to suffering called Dukkha. Birth is pain. Life is pain. Death is pain. It's all the same. One, one oh. of those fun little limericks, those little fortune cookies that St. Anger has. That was his fault. It was based off Buddhist philosophy. That's my favorite fortune cookie. <laughs> Crack that cookie. Mm. Everything is painful. Lars says, if we added guitar solos to this, it would date it. it Kirk mm. flips the fuck out and says not having guitar solos is exactly what is going to date this fucking record. I just cannot. Someone had the same conversation with Fallout Boy and Pete was like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Let me throw this shit out the window. He's like, dude, everyone loves our guitar solos. What the fuck is wrong with you? What is that line of thinking and how do you just let him do that? It, the answer is because he'll hit you very hard. It's what he does for a job. What I can only assume that happened is that Lars and James held down Kirk and they new metal pilled him into just agreeing to it. Oh my god. That blows my mind that he stuck with that. That is worse than James. That's worse than Jason uh, tolerating abuse. That's so stupid. Because you're not even recording it. They're not even pretending like they're going to put it on and they they just turn it down. They just flat out say you're not going to do it. Later he would appear in public or he would appear on the documentary with like a weird radio chip in his neck and like a gun to his head and he says <laughs> we wanted to um and he holds up a piece of paper and he's sweating. We just wanted to sound like a band jamming out and then you hear like some foreign language in the background and like somebody comes up with a machete and he's like and and oh Overdubs would just sound like an afterthought. We wanted it to be pure. Don't kill me. My family loves me very much. The barrel hovers into view. It's shaking at him. He pretty much just said that if they added in overdubs or any kind of guitar solos, it didn't sound pure. I thought it was crazy that they did that that MTV interview and the backdrop was like a, a, a wet dripping cave. <laughs> With one key light on him. <laughs> and like a strange plastic like covering across the entire room just in case things had to get messy. I, I know it sounds like there was a lot of weird shit going on and like the band was falling apart, but they really were working together on this after they coerced Kirk into not doing anything. <laughs> after they did the clockwork orange treatment and held his eyes open and said, new metal, this is the future. And they just opened his ears up and shoved an entire Limp Bizkit record in there. Just, You're going to listen to nothing face. <laughs> After they were done, when they listened to the record, instead of them saying, maybe we should do another take, Bob Rock would say, no, overdubs, redos, guitar solos, that's all too polished and overly theatrical. No Swedish producers, <laughs> no nothing. 
uncut rock. He said that he didn't want the album to seem overly theatrical. He says this to the band that just performed with a fucking orchestra a couple years prior. Yeah, but that was the mistake, Jack. We need to get back to basics. What worked on the Black Album? Making it dumber? Mm, let's take it another step. After two years of recording this album, they released it in June 5th, 2003. Two years. Five days earlier than they wanted, which was June 10th, due to the concerns of the album leaking. Hey, you know what? They can't leak it if we leak the unfinished product. The album came out. This would be the last record that Electro Records would do with Metallica. I don't know if it was directly related to them ending their partnership. This was also the last album they worked with Bob Rock on. I think we saw that one coming a while ago, though. That was, they said that going into San Anger. This leads us to where we talk a bit about what we thought of the most infamous album of all time. <clears throat> Sweet Amber was okay. Like the album art. The album art is neat. It was by Pusshead. Rock and roll. He designed t-shirts for the band, and this was his first album cover he did with them. Ah, oh, nice. Good for him. I once saw a Photoshop of it with a giant red dick in the hand, so it ruined it for me. Uh, this album really called its shots with the lyric, Saint Anger, He Gets No Respect. Pretty, like, Nostradamus prophetic. Uh, is it just me, or is all of the life energy drained, and I can't even articulate how much I, uh, didn't love this album? What's weird, Jack, this is among one of the easier listens I've had on this show. Captain Beefheart broke me spiritually. Right. Uh, by the time I- and that was by tr the end of track one. I was hurt- I was hurt already. I mean, what well, White Album, honestly, yeah, probably the easiest listen of all. Um, although I did love Bedlam and Goliath and, and Black Parade, and I've pitched all those. This record turned me off about halfway through around Invisible Man because I, I'd been listening to it in the background. I wasn't even giving it my full attention, and it still bored me. I sat down and listened to this record front to back. This is the album I would credit to making me stop listening to this kind of music. This killed your new metal streak? Hearing how Metallica sold themselves out to a sound that is just ugly... It made me realize that the popular songs that I was listening to just were not that engaging to listen to, after all. Like, it was this thing that they were playing up to appeal to angsty young children, and this completely unveiled it when I realized these 45-year-old guys that my dad listened to tried to do it. I legitimately got a headache halfway through, and I had to stop mm -hmm. for about a couple hours. I listen to some of the weirdest batshit stuff on loop. Like, I like Captain Beefheart. It takes a lot to get me annoyed. Jazz is among the most obnoxious genres of music there is. I'm not going to apologize for that ever. I hate you, but go on. <laughs> uh, but in college, I remember <laughs> passing by me like, hey, Jack, how's it going? So, oh, pretty good. I've been going through my discography and um, I'm on 50s jazz right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so take that as your dose of context that Jack endured that and this was annoying. I, yeah, I like free jazz. I like stuff that most people make fun of. And I, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with people telling me Captain Beefheart is something that Charles Manson would be inspired by. I, I get it. St. Anger is just something. This is so genuinely trying to be a radio hit, and it sucks ass in that respect. Like, it's tolerable in some songs, but the midway point, I think we can both agree, is just a prime example of songs that go way too long, without enough variety, and the mix is just bad. It sucks. It sounds uglier than a lot of lo-fi independent stuff I've heard. There is a quality to some low-fidelity music 
that can be enjoyed. This sounds like the halfway point. It sounds like a rich band with rich equipment making it sound shitty. Instead of the opposite, which is like a young band with what they've got trying their very best. It's the worst kind of raw. Because you know they're rich. You know they can do better. They could afford better, and they just didn't do it. Yeah, that's that's what makes it so terrible for me, is context of knowing you could be doing so much better. And, and I know Blunderphonic, sometimes it sounds like every episode I'm trying to get harsher and harsher. <laughs> Just just for the shock value, like, it, it's not a good episode if I didn't get mind-alteringly angry. I don't hate this record, but it's severely disappointing for what it could have been, you know? When you take the riffs of new metal and you try to make it as long as their progressive technical stuff, it wears out its welcome. The thing that saves it for me are the lyrics, which are the room levels of hilarious to me. <laughs> I imagine James Hetfield with a journal chuckling to himself when he writes the words, I'm madly in love with you, scratches out love and replaces it with, I'm madly in anger with you and saying, it's a commentary on how much I love hatred. <laughs> I, I, I'm imagining him thinking, my lifestyle determines my, that's it, death style. And he writes it down like it's the greatest fucking Shakespearean quote of all time. And the way he's like, I'm so angry, I'm like a clock so fran tick tick tock <laughs> and that's just the first song oh if i could get my wasted days back jack i would i would not spend them listening to this when this album came out it sold millions of copies much like any other metallic album and they even received some positive reviews from critics saying that it was the most invigorating they've sounded in a very long time but there were quite a few mixed reviews talking about the song lengths and the drum sound being particularly unforgivable. And those who were critical of the record really let it have it. I'm going to pull up a review from Pitchfork for you because they summarized everything perfectly. I want to hear what Roger Ebert has to say about this one. <laughs> That's for the movie podcast, Spencer. Coming soon. Oh my God, coming soon. Pitchfork said that Ulrich was playing a drum set consisting of steel drums, aluminum toms, programmed double kicks, and a broken church bell. The kit's high-end clamor ignored the basic principles of drumming, timekeeping. The reviewer Brent DiCrescenzo added that Hetfield and Hammett's guitars underwent more processing than cat food. When they both speed-strummed through St. Anger, Hetfield and Hammett seemed to overwhelm each other with different terrible noise. You know he was, like, thinking of that cat food line in the bathroom, and he's like, oh, nice, that's gonna knock him He down. was sitting there <laughs> laughing in his journal, just like James Hetfield with the madly in anger part. <laughs> also, my favorite review, Pop Matters, said that St. Anger dispenses with the recent spate of radio-friendly pleasantries in favor of pedal-to-the-floor thrash staggered and extended song structures, quick changes and muddled production that tries to harken back to the kill em all days. All attempts fail miserably. <laughs> that could have been a compliment, right up to the last few words. As of now, on the site Rate Your Music, it sits at approximately 1.8 out of 5 with over 10,000 ratings, making it the most hated album on the site. No, really? There are albums with worse. There are very few albums that break 10,000 and none of them come close to that low of a score. That's like the Kiss Christmas special level bad. It's like Batman v Superman. It, it's so expensive that it should know better. That's a great way to put it. It's, it's so expensive they should have known better. <laughs> and the worst part of all is they were still immensely successful. It topped the charts in 14 countries. And they even won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance for the title track, St. Anger. It has sold a total of 6 million copies worldwide. 
Yeah, that's great, but how many uh, illegally downloaded it? I want those numbers. <laughs> the album's most successful aspect would be the documentary, which would be released in 2004. Of course. It premiered at Sundance to quite some acclaim. Mm. It would win the Independent Spirit Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2005. The band would end up picking a new bassist, Robert Trujillo, to perform with them uh, on the tour for the album. And he remains to this day the band's bassist, being the bassist who has stuck with the band the longest. Well, eventually you get so old you don't have time for that youthful bandmate drama. <laughs> they don't have the energy to kick a new bassist out. The band would remain close with Jason Newstead despite his departure. What about Bob Rock? Bob Rock would sometimes show up on stage to perform bass on some of the St. Anger songs. However, Dave Mustaine, upon seeing the documentary, was very unhappy with how he was portrayed. When the filmmakers asked for his permission to use the interview, he said, no, I'm sorry, this is, I don't like this. Not realizing he already cerned an early release form, letting them do that. <laughs> that was just out of courtesy and they kept him in anyway, pissing him off and saying that it would ruin the reputation between him and Metallica for the rest of time. To which Lars said, put these three facts down. He was in our band for a year. He never played on a Metallica record. And it was 22 years ago. It's pretty absurd that it could still be that big a deal. Oh, he said from his mountain of money. He said from his mountain of money. They would eventually repair their relationship with Dave Mustaine. And about 10 years ago, they've actually performed on tours together. And they have a much better relationship now. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Did Dave ever get over his habit of uh, just eating a, a hot bowl of firecrackers in the morning? <laughs> no. Before chugging Red Bull and gasoline and jumping his car over the Snakewater River. A lot of the band was happy with how the album turned out, saying that it proved that you can make aggressive music without negative energy. However... Something really interesting happened. I noticed a trend with the band after the release of St. Anger. They went on a world tour with Limp Bizkit, Deftones, Linkin Park, and Mudvayne. So just kind of giving you a good idea of who they thought they should perform with. Now I've become so numb. As they toured with the album, songs from it began being altered. Songs were truncated, being half the length of what they were on the album. You're kidding me. And notably... A lot of guitar solos were added back in to make up for some of the longer stretches. Mmm. So they produced and redid the album, but only in a live context. For a brief time. Songs from the album would slowly fade away as they toured for the very album they were promoting, with only the singles and Dirty Window being performed somewhat regularly. The song Sweet <laughs> Amber, the one you actually said was okay, was notably only played live once with such negative reception they have never played it again. What, did people boo it? <laughs> All I know it was played once, and by 2008, not a single song from St. Anger would be in their main set list ever again. Chester Bennington just runs out on stage, snatches the microphone for Sweet Amber, just starts singing <laughs> numb. They would only play songs from St. Anger on rare occasions. Like, it would be a special request from fans, or Bob Rock would be around so they would perform one for fun, but it would never be officially on their set list again after 2008 to this day. The band, upon seeing the documentary, were very happy with how it turned out. Lars said that it captured a moment in the band where they were actively trying to fix problems instead of causing them. However, James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett were embarrassed by one particular scene, where they visit Lars at his home with his wife. He and his wife go to an English art auction and sell one of their paintings for $13 million. 
James and Kirk said seeing a metal drummer do something like that is just flat out embarrassing and that it should have been removed. To which Lara said, if you're going to paint a portrait of the people in Metallica, that has to play a role because that is who I am. Note how he said paint a portrait. Yeah. <laughs> if you must capture my essence <laughs> on a medium, <laughs> on the tapestry of Metallica, you cannot exclude the portions where I go to art auctions and eat hors d'oeuvres. Uh. It's truly fucking metal. You know, the Mona Lisa. That is Metallica's St. Anger for you, Spencer. One of these days, we'll have to listen to another Metallica record. They have so many wild stories, and we've just oh, yeah. scraped the surface. But Absolutely. We've been doing this for quite a long time. It's been two parts already. Uh, Jack, lead us off. Anything you want to plug? Yes, if you have any albums you would like to request for us to cover on the show, please visit my Rate Your Music page, The Dissonant Opinion. I love hearing any kind of music I can get my hands on and listen to. So if you have any requests, please visit me there. Mm -hmm. I have received quite a few requests since the start of season two for many different artists, for, ranging from post-hardcore, death metal, and I'm just excited to see what more people have to offer. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to see that folks are engaging and people like it. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to those of us who had followed us on Twitter and are uh, picking up our YouTube channel, even though we haven't put anything there as of the time of this recording. Yeah, th th things have been kind of crazy with us in terms of trying to get everything out there. I mean, the, the main focus is getting a podcast out once a week, so we're doing that at least. We're doing that at least let that be the blunder phonics national anthem and the jinx because we'll probably end up skipping a week one of these days and regret <laughs> saying that spencer is there anything you would like to plug before we end this episode off jack as it happens uh folks can find my youtube channel uh folks can also find my other shows with links in the description of this podcast we thank you guys so much for tuning in and next week i hope you guys check out our episode on the dixie chicks is that who we're covering next? Dixie Chicks. I did not vet Jack on this, and now it's etched in time in a memoriam. He can't stop it. Yes, we're doing the Dixie Chicks. Uh, album specifics will come uh, a little later in the future, but there's your general teaser for now. Oh, man, I can't wait for this very fun romp with women that has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Doom and gloom in Dixieland. Spencer, before we end this episode, there's one thing I want to bring up to you. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the song, The Unnamed Feeling, that we listened to on this album? Uh, they all blended together, so no. <laughs> there is a song called The Unnamed Feeling. Um, there was an interview with James Hetfield asking about what this song means, to which he replied that The Unnamed Feeling is anxiety, which is a named feeling, so they even fucked that up. <laughs> <laughs> that one has a name, James. It has a name. Oh, God.